one thing the book of Romans shows us, at least up through chapter 6, and actually we'd have to say up through chapter 11, but we just haven't got that far yet. Paul does not look at the Christian life and think to himself, okay, what people really need to know is what I really need to deal with, right at the bottom of, of everything, the, the pillars of Christianity are not, how can people have a good marriage? Or how can people deal with their financial woes and their financial difficulties? How can they make it day by day through life just trying to figure out how to be nice to the guy at work? Not that those things don't have a place in the Christian life. What Paul shows us is there are basic truths to the Christian life. They are basic, they are fundamental, and they are massively important. Because how we view these things, what we believe about these things, will have incredible impact in all the other areas of our life. What you understand about justification, what you understand about regeneration, what you understand about sanctification will impact your life in all areas of your life. And we live in a day and in an age where for the most part people like to gather together in churches, jump up and down, run around, shout. I can remember after God saved me, the first church I went into, the pastor literally, folks, and I can't do it. There's too many obstacles in the way. But I mean, this guy would run circles around the pulpit. Now, if he tried it here, he'd run into that phone right there. But that's, that's the kind of thing... This guy would run circles around it, hoot and holler and jump up and down. Do you think that's what Paul did? What Paul does is he looks at brothers and sisters in Christ and he said, let me tell you the deep things about your Christianity. Because in the midst of the storm, these deep things are where the soul clings. These are the things that hold you steadfast in the midst of the turmoil. Running circles around the pulpit right now isn't going to help you. But telling you about the very foundations of the Gospel will. And that's what Paul has been doing. That's what we're going to continue to look at. Read with me, Romans 5.20. Now, from 5.12, Paul has been comparing Adam and Christ. Those in Adam have all sinned. Those in Adam all die. Those in Adam face a judgment of condemnation. All of them. Because of the one man's sin, death came upon all. Because of the one man's death and condemnation, because of that one sin and all that we have in Christ, we're undone. You and I are born in Christ. Man by nature is in Christ. Man by nature is under sin. Man by nature is headed to condemnation. That's what he says about men. But there is another realm. Christianity is a realm transfer. You go from being in Adam to being in Christ. Where in Adam means I die. Why? Because God actually takes His transgression. You know when He ate the fruit, Of that tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, do you know what God said happened to you? You know God counts you guilty in Him because of that sin. Now, I'm not here to tell you and to argue about this with you as to whether it's fair or not. All I know is God does everything right. But I can tell you this, before you get too worked up, thinking that God is unfair about this, remember, it's based on the very same truth of imputation that men and women are declared righteous. The very way men and women are fallen in Adam is the very same way men and women are counted righteous in Christ. And that's the comparison. If you're in Adam, you die. If you're in Christ, you live. If you're in Adam, you're under sin. If you're in Christ, you are declared righteous. If you're in Adam, you face nothing but condemnation. If you're in Christ, you face eternal life. And what 
Basically, what happens in verses 18 and 19 is he says, that man sinned, that old man, Adam. But because of the righteousness, because of the obedience of the one, many will be declared righteous. And what he's saying is, Jesus Christ worked out a righteousness for his people. And he gets done with all that and he says, now, you know what happened? He said the law came in. When did the law come in? The law came in through Moses. The law hadn't been given from Adam to Moses. During that whole time frame, they didn't have the law. They didn't have it. And why did it come in? It came in to make sin more sinful. It came in to show sin. You know what it did? It came in to show the condition of man. Because law doesn't stop people from sinning. What law does is it aggravates sin. It just worked people up to sin all the more. And you know what it did? Whereas up till that point, men died and they were damned because of Adam's sin, now the law comes and it creates little atoms out of all of us because now we all go right on transgressing some known law. Before that, there was no law. Where there's no law, he said, sin isn't imputed. The only reason sin was being imputed to us is because Adam's sin was being imputed to us. But now the law is given. That's where we pick up. Romans 5.20 Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.1 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, I didn't necessarily have to stop right there. Do you know what's so interesting about 11? First time in Romans, you have an imperative. A command is given. Something we need to do. You know, up till now, it's been nothing about what we do. I realize there's been things that have talked about our faith, but we haven't been told to believe yet. There's been no imperative yet. Until right here. Okay. That seems like a lot, and it is. But let's just narrow down here. Let's, let's look through all this verbiage and find some, some truth. Look with me at Romans 6.1. Notice what's happened, folks. The law came in. What the law did was it simply stirred people up. You guys know what I mean. Tell your child, don't go in that room. Up till then, they never even thought about that room. As soon as you tell them don't go in there, now what are they doing? They're running around here looking at the door all day long. Just wait until you're not looking because they're going in there. That's what law does to sinful man. It simply stirs his sinful tendencies. 
That's what it does. The law does not equip us to keep it. The law simply stirs up our native depravity. You see it in children. You see it in yourselves, if you look in the mirror. You do. And so what happens is the law comes in, simply stirs us up. But this is what Paul says. That's okay. Even though man now has law that he sins against and makes himself all the more guilty because of it, his guilt is just amplified. That's okay. Because where sin abounds, what else happens? Grace abounds. And so no matter how big the sin gets, the grace of Christ is always able to be bigger still. So what Paul does is he begins to anticipate somebody's going to run wild with that thinking. And they're going to come up with an error in the end. So what Paul does is he plays his own worst adversary in Romans 6.1. He anticipates a typical response of his enemies that's likely to come against such a radically free offer of the Gospel. Now watch this. He has just said, where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. The law has this tendency not to restrain and subdue sin, but to excite it and to increase it. Now he asks this question. If this is true, if sin gets bigger, but the grace of God is bigger still, he asks this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Here is the great objection to justification by grace through faith apart from the works of the law. It seems to open the door to rampant sinning. Shouldn't we after all sin as much as possible? It seems to... Listen... Doesn't it seem to invite more sinning? If I say, you guys, think with me. We think this way. How do I mean? You know, sometimes out here on these streets, we will see some old prostitute. I mean, she is hardened in her sin. Or we'll see some guy. Boy, there's, when we were over in our other building, there's some guy. I see him still walking around here. This guy, he, he cussed me out before. He did, Brother Charles. He's just got a filthy mouth. This guy is just wicked. He's a criminal. He walks these streets. Nothing. He's just foul mouth. The guy is bent on nothing but, but evil. You guys know some of these prostitutes that come in here? We look at them and what do we say? Wouldn't it be glorious if Christ saved them? Why? Because their lives are so filthy, they've lived in that cesspool of sin so long that if Christ were to save them, what trophies of His magnificent grace. We think that way. And that's not wrong to think that way. But do you know what people do? They take it a step further and they say, okay, well, if that's true, then now that I'm a Christian, why don't I just keep on sinning? I mean, where's there any motivation to quit sin? I mean, after all, if the grace of Christ abounds all the more, if my sin increases, then let's just let it keep increasing. Because, after all, the more sin I have, the more wicked I am, doesn't it just exalt His grace all the more? Doesn't it? And Paul says, Shall we just sin like that? Shall we do this thing? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? His answer is, By no means. By no means. By no means. But you see, folks, if we preach the gospel correctly, it should lead to this question. 
it should lead to people pondering this. Why? Because it is that free. And because it is that radically that justification delivers. Folks, what is justification? It is God pronouncing just. Not because of your works. Because of the works of Jesus Christ. What justification is, God coming to a person who puts faith in Christ and because of that faith, He, there's a transfer. There's what's called an imputation or an accounting or a reckoning. Your sin is not reckoned any longer as yours. It's reckoned to Christ. He who know, knew no sin became sin. And I who knew no righteousness become the righteousness of God in Him. So my sin is transferred to Him His righteousness transferred to me. And now me, the sinner, the unrighteous one, the ungodly one, is counted righteous. And Christ, who never committed a sin, is counted as sin. And God punished him in my place for it. And God now counts me like he should treat the son. That's justification. It is full. It is free. And it is, folks, radically free. We rightly feel that the more sin that is forgiven, that all the more puts the saving power of the cross on display. And that is what Paul has been teaching. Well, what's Paul's answer to this? We looked at it. But before we give Paul's answer and really delve into it, we need to be sure that we see what his answer is not. This is crucial. His answer is not that those who object this way have misunderstood the radical character of justifying grace. I mean, you guys understand that? You know what Paul could have done? If somebody came along and said, well, hey, if it's so radical, if it's so free, if this is what you're saying about justification, and if it doesn't matter how much sin I have in my life and I can be forgiven for it, which is true, the greatest sinner, the chief of sinners can be forgiven, well, then why don't I just keep on in sin? Now, I want to tell you what Paul's answer is not. Paul's answer is not, well, you misunderstood. I didn't really mean to say that justification is so free and so entirely separated from your own works. I didn't mean to say that. He didn't say that, folks. They did understand right. They did understand how radical he's speaking here. They did. Paul doesn't turn around and say, well, hold on. It does have something to do with your law keeping. It does have something to do with your effort. He doesn't. He doesn't. He said, you've got that much just right. He looks at his enemies and he said, those, those who were, and he calls them that. He does not look favorably upon the people who do this. I'll tell you what it is, folks. It's license. People run around and they say, oh, God is so merciful. And he is. God is so forgiving. And he is. So let's just live it up. That's license. And you know what? That's deadly. Because what it shows is that something is very wrong at the root. And he's going to get to that in just a second. But the first thing I wanted you to see is what Paul didn't say. He didn't defend himself by saying, well, you guys have misunderstood. No, they did understand. They did. They saw something about justification that that was absolutely correct. Justification is really by grace, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. That is how we get right with God. That is the foundation of the Christian life. And it's this radical view of grace that causes the problem. Okay? Now notice Paul's approach here. And look at verses 1 and 2 with me of Romans 6. Paul asks three questions. Three. They're all rhetorical. Now you guys know what a rhetorical question is, right? It just simply means 
It is not being asked to get an answer. It's being asked to make a point. So, first we have, what shall we say then? Now, this is rhetorical because Paul isn't looking for an answer. He's not admitting that he just immediately drew a big blank and doesn't know what to say next. He knows exactly what he's going to say. And he quickly follows with his second question. Here it is. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Again, rhetorical, because Paul isn't looking for you or for me to answer that. He answers almost before he gets it out of his mouth. By no means. And then he fires off the third rhetorical question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul doesn't expect an answer. He expects us to see the answer already in the question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The answer is a resounding, we can't. We can't. That's exactly where he wants us to get. Rhetorical questions don't expect answers. They make statements. Paul asks all three of these questions to make a huge statement. Now, my daughter, like many of your children, got candy on Wednesday. Whose idea was that? <laughs> Sister, he actually confessed to it. And she had, she had this candy on the floor. Now, we have this little poodle named Tozer. And I said to her yesterday, how do you think you're going to keep Tozer from eating that candy? Well, that was a rhetorical question because I wasn't looking for her to give me some thesis on how dogs stay away from candy on the floor. I was making a statement. She knew right away what I was saying to her is, you need to pick that candy up because if you don't, the dog's going to eat it. We talk like that. That's, that's familiar with us. Well, that Paul is asking these three questions in order to make a statement. He's saying this. Some of you may suspect that this kind of radical teaching on justification might lead to people thinking that they have a license to sin, but that is simply not the nature of what it means to be saved. Something happens to an individual when they are saved that makes it impossible for them to live in sin. God simply does not justify a sinner and give them a righteous legal standing before him without also doing a radical alteration to them on the inside that makes it impossible for them to still live in sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We can't. He doesn't say it might not be possible. You know, there's a possibility that he is implying, folks, by that, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That question throws this home to us. We can't. Why is this important? Because you have a whole lot of Christians out there who come around. They love to talk about backsliding. They love to talk about being carnal. Folks, where does it teach that in the Bible? We get that here. We got that over there. We get it down at the bridge. We get it. We get it from people who come into this place and they claim to be Christians. We get it on all sides. People everywhere are telling me this. They will. I, I will ask somebody. Tell me about your experience. Tell me about how you were saved. You know what they say? Well, I was really saved when I was six years old, and I fell away. You cannot live in sin. That's what this says. How can you live in it who have died to it? And the answer is you can't. And people come along and they say, oh, but I'm the exception. I did it. I was saved when I was eight, fell away from the Lord, lived up my wild oats during my teenage years. When I was 25, I came back to the Lord. And I'll, you know what? Sometimes I won't say anything to them because if they're present testimony is they're walking with God. That's all that matters to me. But I can tell you this. God does not allow one of His children to live 12-year chunk of their life running and drinking sin. Why? 
Because you can't. Because when God justifies a sinner, it is proof of another work that He did in the sinner. Namely, regeneration. Regeneration means you have been brought from death to life. Now, before we look too much at this, I want you to see this. Paul is not... Don't confuse me here. And don't confuse Paul. He is not teaching perfectionism. But he is teaching radical alteration. Radical regeneration. You can't live... In, well, okay, let's, let's look at three things that will show us that it's not perfectionism that Paul means. First, notice that what Paul denies is not that you can never commit a sin, but that you cannot live in it. There's a difference. There is a difference. Living in sin is drinking in it. It's wallowing in it. It's like the pig in its mire. You're in it. You're under it. You're surrounded by it all the time. That's not what happens when a Christian falls into sin. That's not living in it. A person who loves God is striving after righteousness, loves this Word, seeks to imitate Christ, repents when they fall into sin. That's different, folks, than a person who drinks it like water. That's different than how you were when you were lost. And you know full well what I mean by it. When you were lost, you drank, you drank alcohol to get pitiful drunk. You know you did. You wanted to get drunk. You loved your drugs. You worshipped them. You loved your money. You'd do anything to get it and for the pleasures that you thought it could buy for you. Your mouth was filthy. It ran filthy. You thought lustful thoughts. You ran around with every woman or every man you could. And if you didn't do it in your external body, you did it in your mind. You did it up here. You drank it. You thought wickedness. You were scheming and planning evil all the time. You were consumed by it. That is not the Christian life. The Christian who glances over at a beautiful woman and realizes what's happened. They sinned. They looked and they lusted, but they turned back and they confess it to God. They don't like it. They can't wait until the day comes when they'll be delivered totally. They don't want to sin. That's a whole nother story, folks. A whole nother story. Paul here is not talking about whether we sin. He's talking about living in it. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Living in it corresponds to the question in verse 1. Are we to continue in sin? He's not talking about continuing in individual sins. He's talking about continuing under or in this realm of sin. The idea of these two phrases, continue in, verse 1, and live in, is that when we have become united with Christ in His death, we cannot go on with an unchanged pattern of sin in our lives. It is no longer the realm that I live in. I can't continue in habitual patterns of lawlessness. Now the second reason we can see that it's not perfectionism is found in verse 6 where it says our old self, if you look at Romans 6, 6, a few words into it, our old self was crucified with Him, with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Well, here's the effect of being joined with Christ. It's that we're no longer slaves to sin. It's got to do with mastery. It's got to do with dominion. As verse 14 says, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Being freed from the mastery or enslavement or dominion of sin is not the same as being sinlessly perfect. You know what dominion of sin is? Because you've all been there. And some of you are there now. 
irregardless of your religious profession, you are driven by sin. It is a master over you. But the Christian is not that way. Righteousness is the master. That doesn't mean sin can't creep in, but what it means is though the righteous man fall, and though he may fall seven times, he's going to rise, folks. Every time. Every time. Every time. Third, boy, the whole language of the context here tells us Paul's not talking about perfection. Look at the commands in verse 11 and 12 and 13. In verse 11 he says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. In verse 12 he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. In verse 13 he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. If there's no ongoing battle with sin in the Christian life, then why these commandments? They clearly imply that. Even though we have died to sin as a way of life, therefore cannot live in or continue in sin habitually, we are still capable of sin and therefore must need to be instructed to fight. But stop right here. Just because Paul isn't teaching perfectionism, don't let that undo the reality of the truth that Paul is bringing out. Even though the Christian isn't made sinlessly perfect, I want you to hear what he does say. Are we to continue in sin? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we? Hear his words. How can we? Well, we can't. It's impossible. So though not perfect, the realm in which the Christian lives is not the realm of sin. It is the realm of righteousness. Sin is not his master. Christian, you are a slave of righteousness. And if your testimony is this, that you are a backslidden Christian, you know what the likelihood is? You know what you're saying? When a person comes along to me and says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm backslidden. You know what they're saying? I'm a Christian, but I live in sin. You know what Paul says? You can't. And so you know what? If you come in here today, and that's your testimony, and right now you're living in sin, the issue is not whether or not your Christian profession in the past is valid. The issue is, if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian... Paul says you can't live in it. And if you say you are, what you're doing is you're describing yourself as a lost person. You're not describing yourself as a backslidden Christian. You're describing yourself as being outside of Christ. I don't say that. Paul says that. And you know what? Jesus Christ says that too. He says you'll know them by their fruits. And if you come in here telling me, well, all the fruit in my life is the fruit of a lost man, but I'm a Christian, Christ says you know them by their fruits. Call the tree what you want to call it. Call it an apple tree. Call it a walnut tree. But folks, if it's got pears on it, it's a pear tree. You can call it whatever you want. But I'll tell you what, there's a day coming when all titles will be put right. We can call ourselves anything we want to under the sun. (coughs) Folks, question I want to ask is what happens that makes it impossible for a justified sinner to continue in sin? Why is Paul so dogmatic to answer his question about whether it's possible for Christians to continue in sin with by no means? Why won't a justified sinner be able to continue in sin? Well, is it even important that we know why? Here's my answer. I'm going to answer you with a question. How can I see justification? Now let me explain that. If God justifies the ungodly, which Romans 4 says He does, if God takes the righteousness of Christ and applies it to me who am ungodly, how can that be seen? How can it be known? If God justifies not good people, if He justified good people, all I'd have to do is look for good people and I could know, okay, well that's who He did. But when you got guys that come along like Paul who persecuted the church like to see them put to death. When a guy like this who's an enemy of Christ comes along and says, I'm a justified sinner, how do I know? The guy's lived the life of a hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisee. 
He comes along and now he says he's justified. How can I know? How can you know? Here I was, 25 years of my life, I drank sin like water. 25 years in one day, one day into my new life, how can you come along and look at me and know? How can anybody know? How can you know today? After supposedly I've been walking with the Lord for what, 17 years? How can you know I'm a Christian? If God justifies ungodly people by legally accounting the righteousness of Christ to my account, how can you see that? It's a legal thing that God does. It's an accounting that He does. How can you know or I know? How can it... You know what? Justification can't be seen. It can't. You can't see it. Because it's a legal transaction that takes place in the mind of God. So how can we know? The way we can know is because regeneration always accompanies justification. You... Folks, let me ask you this. How is a man justified? By faith. Is he not? And where does faith come from? Faith is said in the Scriptures to be a gift of God. How do you take a person who hates God, is unbelieving, which by the way, Romans chapter 3 describes, none seek Him. None. Have you ever read that? Romans 3. None seek after God. So how is it that all of a sudden a man or a woman or a child comes along to seek God? How is it they come along to have faith? Do you think you were somehow smarter? Scripture says faith is a gift. If you got it, it was given to you by God. Have you guys ever read this about Lydia? You know what Paul was speaking And it says God opened her heart. God opened her heart. Was she smarter? No. The reason that she was converted and somebody maybe even sitting next to her wasn't is because God opened her heart. Where there's faith, God gives it. Where there's an open heart to receive the Word, God opened it. You guys, you need to understand this. Before somebody can even believe to be justified, they must be regenerated, which means they must be recreated. They must be made alive in Christ because only those who are living can believe. Only those who are living can do any good thing because when you're dead, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You cannot please God. You do not have the ability to please God. What God must do is He must come along and supernaturally cause you to be born again before anything can happen. Anything. You did not first seek Him. He first sought you if you were ever sought at all. Lay it down. Bank on it. God never has the sinner before Him. He is always before. No one seeks God. Listen to me. In John chapter 6, Jesus Christ said, No one, no man can come unto me unless my Father which has sent me draws him. How does any sinner come? Only if the Father first draws. How does Lydia come? Only because God first opened her heart. How do you believe? Only because God by grace first gave you the gift of faith. How do you repent? Because it was granted to you to repent. That's the only... You say, you've got to repent and believe. You're absolutely right. You have to. But I'll tell you this, you'll never do it unless God grants it. And you'll never have it unless you're first regenerated. Well, regeneration. Let's look at it. Man basically has one problem. You can look at it from two different aspects. You know what man's one problem is? Take this away and all man's problems go away. Can you tell me what it is? Sin. There's no other problem man has. Now sin, there's a, it reveals itself in a twofold dilemma as far as man goes. First, his heart desperately wicked. It's deceitful. He comes forth 
in sin. He's consummating in sin. That little child comes forth from its mother not needing to be taught to lie or cheat or steal or hate. We by nature have bad hearts and we can't change them. Folks, the leopard or the Ethiopian can change what their skin looks like. You have the ability to change that heart and I guarantee they don't and you don't. You cannot change your heart. It's bad. It is bad. By nature, that's one of the problems you have. You're connected with Adam. You have his nature. He fell into sin. He passed his nature on to you and to me. I've got it. Doesn't matter what color the skin is on the outside. We're all bad on the inside. But here's our second problem. Second problem is because we have a bad heart, we actually do sin. And when we do sin, it gives us a bad record. You and I are guilty. So not only are we polluted, we face punishment. We're under a curse. Why? Because we have a bad heart and we have a bad record. And for God to deal with our sin problem, He must take care of both sides of the issue. He must deal with our guilt problem and He must deal with our heart problem. And He does. Folks, in that great dilemma of mankind, Jesus Christ came down here into this world to solve both aspects of that problem. He solves the guilt problem by washing our record absolutely clean And that's what justification is. Justified means declared righteous. Perfectly without sin. By faith, you are justified. But, that's not it. Because if you only have your record taken care of, you still have a heart problem. This is what Paul's getting at in Romans 6. God never, 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 ever deals with the record problem Except he deal with the heart problem also. That's why you can't sin. Because God will not allow you to be able to continue to sin. Because whoever is justified has first been regenerated. He's been made alive. And I want you to, I want you to listen to these. Paul uses this, this life and death terminology here in Romans 6. Romans 6, 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6, 4. We too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 13. Those who have been brought from death to life. You see the life and death terminology that he uses? To sin you were alive, now you're dead. To God, you were dead, now you're alive. To righteousness, you were dead, but now you've been brought to newness of life. You see the life and death terminology there? Well, this is not foreign to the Scriptures when it talks about regeneration. Listen, John 5.25, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is here. This is not talking future, folks. He's not talking about a future resurrection. He's talking about a resurrection for now. For today. It's now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. You see, dead, they live. What we're talking about is people who are spiritually dead being brought to spiritual life. Again, Ephesians 2, you guys know this. You were dead. In trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, find the prince of the power of the air, spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. We once lived where? In the passions of our flesh. We once lived to sin. Now we've died to it. Carrying on the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did He do? Made us alive together 
with Christ by grace you have been saved. Colossians 2.13 says basically the same thing. You who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision in your flesh, God made alive. This is, this is the glory. We are dead. None seek Him. How, Paul, how can you say that? None seek Him. Because I know some that do. What he's saying is, none do on their own. Unless God busts into their life, invades where they are, and calls them out with an effectual call. I mean, he says, come forth. And like Lazarus, you don't resist. It's not he drags you kicking and screaming. Lazarus wanted to come out of the grave. When he calls you forth, you hear his voice. You come to spiritual life. And for the first time in your life, you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You love Him. You desire Him. You hate sin. You love His Word. You love His people. Where does that come from? You didn't create that. He plants it. He works it. Regeneration. Do you know what generate means? Well, you know what Genesis is? It means the creation. Genesis. Creation. Generate means to create or produce. Regenerate means to recreate. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of what? Nothing. Now do you know what He's in the business of doing? Recreating men out of wicked, fallen, depraved condition. He recreates them into righteousness and purity and holiness. Which is probably a greater act of creation. It's one thing for God to take something created out of nothing. It's a whole other thing to take something that's wicked and God able to make it pure. Paul says it yet another way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Is He not? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. (coughs) You know what's interesting about that? When you look at Romans 6, listen to this in Romans 6.6. Our old self was crucified with Him so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, but walk in newness of life. Now compare this. Compare this. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, old has passed away. In Romans 6.6, old self crucified. The old has passed away. That's how he says it in 2 Corinthians. In Romans, he says, the old self crucified. In 2 Corinthians, new things have come. In Romans 6.4, Newness of life. You see, that there's parallels here. He speaks about the new creation in 2 Corinthians. He's saying, the old passed away, new has come. That's the same terminology he's using in Romans 6. Old self, crucified, newness of life. So you not only have life and death, which is very similar with regeneration terminology throughout the Scripture, you have old and new. And not only that, you have this idea of the power of sin being broken. You cannot continue to live in it. That's the same kind of language you have where being born again is spoken about. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. Why? Because he's born of God. If you're born of God, God's seed is in you. I'm just trying to draw some parallels right there. I'm going to give you real, real quickly three realities about regeneration. The first one is regeneration is necessary. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why? Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Before new birth by the Spirit of God, there is no spiritual life in us. We are simply flesh. 
That doesn't mean you might not be religious. That doesn't mean you might not go to church. Listen to me. Lots of people who go to church are not born again. We don't make ourselves born again. All the church going in your life will not make you be born again. Own 12 Bibles. It doesn't cause you to be born again. You must be born of the Spirit if you would ever go to heaven. It doesn't say you've got to be a churchgoer. It doesn't say that you've got to be, you know, helping old women across the street. It says you've got to be born again. We've got a lot of people that are not born again. They're religious and there are a lot of other things. You must be. The second thing is regeneration is a work of God. Can I tell you this? Jesus Christ said, the ones who live are the ones who hear my voice. And they come forth, folks. Let me tell you this. You can hear the gospel being preached, but if you don't hear Christ's voice say, come forth, you will not come forth. You will not. You're like Lazarus, dead in that tomb. And unless Christ first speaks, you will not come forth. You say, is this fair? I'm telling you what. God owes us nothing. But He has purpose to cause some to be born again. Yes. Thank you, Lord. Not thank you myself, because I didn't do it. It is all of Him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. He did. John 1, 12. But to all who did receive Him, you say, wait. It says we received Him. Yes, we do. Who believed in His name. Hey, it says we received Him and believed on Him. He gave the right to become the children of God who were born how? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. How were they born? Of God. Not of the will of man. You say they received Him, they believed. Yes, but they didn't receive nor did they believe unless they were born of God. It's not by the will of man. It's not according to the will of the flesh. And this, God regenerates through His Word. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. And just the same, the Spirit of God, it blows around where it wishes. But I'll tell you what, as much as the Spirit of God blows where He wishes or listeth, it's always where the Word of God is preached. Always. James 1.18, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. 1 Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So away with your hyper-Calvinism. Because I can tell you this, God regenerates where the word is preached. And if the Word isn't being preached, you have no business to sit at home in your easy chair saying God is sovereign and God will save whomever He wants. He will save whomever He wants, but He's always going to do it through the preaching, the proclamation, the communication, the distribution of the Word of God. Not aside from it, not apart from it. Never, ever, ever. So it's our responsibility to be the evangelist who holds forth the Word of life. That's our calling. That's why we're here. The commission is ours. The commission is to make disciples. Learners of Christ. We've got to be teaching them. We leave it to God to regenerate. But we've got to hold forth the Word. I cannot make the sinner alive. I cannot make the dead rise. I, I am not in the business of resurrecting. But God is where the Word is preached. And I think, you, oh, you guys, we need, we need to be so straight on this. You, you see, how does evangelism work today? Typically, it goes like this. People use this kind of Roman Rhodes approach. Do you know you're a sinner? And you know what? We might have to work them, right? We've, we've seen the, the whole law works and how we try to work the sinner. Well, you know, the Ten Commandments and have you ever lied and have you ever done this and have you ever... Folks, 
We can get people to say, yes, I'm a sinner. And what happens typically when that happens? Well, people will say, do you want to go to heaven? Or people will say, do you want to go to hell? You don't want to go to hell. No, I don't want to go to hell. You want to go to heaven? Yeah, I want to go to heaven. Which heaven really isn't the issue. The lost man doesn't hate heaven. He hates God. He doesn't want to go to hell because nobody wants to burn. Oh, there's some foolish people out there that they think it's all a big party there and they might, you know, they're Marilyn Manson followers or whatever. They think, yeah, the big party there. It's not Nobody who really knows what hell's about wants to go to hell. And so don't, don't think you're on your way to some great evangelistic endeavor because you can go out here on the street and find people who don't want to go to hell. Or because you can find people out here on the street who tell you they're a sinner. And yet so many people think, well, you got them in the bag. Now all you got to do is have them say a little sinner's prayer. And what we have is a bunch of people making a bunch of decisions, but they've never been born again. It is not according to our decisions. It's according to the will of God. That's what Scripture says. Now, yes, there's a decision, but nobody makes a decision unless their heart has radically been changed to love the Christ they used to hate, to love the truth they used to hate, to love God's people who they used to hate, to love righteousness, which they used to hate, they won't come. The issue is not whether I can get people out here to tell me that they're sinners, to tell me that they want to go to heaven. That isn't the issue. The issue is, as I tell people about their sin, and I show people the only way that sin can be dealt with is by the life and death of Jesus Christ, explain the cross to them, show them yes, They've broken the law. Show them that they are undone. They're under a curse. But then show them what God has provided for the deliverance. Lift the cross up. Lift the work of Christ up before them. And in that, did they hear the voice of God in such a way that I could never speak it to them. The real issue is, did you hear something of the voice of God in the time I was presenting the gospel that was louder than my voice? That, that was an effectual call of God that drew you from being dead to a place of newness of life. That's the real issue. And you see, there's a, there's a component in there you and I can't create. You know what I did last night? I said, Joshua, how do you know you were born? I mean, without, without skipping a beat, he said, because I'm alive. I mean, he didn't even think about it. I'm alive. Isn't it interesting? When, we, when it comes to being born again, which is just as much had nothing to do with us. You, you see, Joshua, he had no involvement in his first birth. None. He had no decision in it. It wasn't something he... You know, he may look back on it now and he may look, be thankful for it or resent it or whatever, but he had no say in it. It's the way he knows he was ever born is because now he's alive. He doesn't look back and say, well, because I decided I wanted to be born or because I made some decision or because I did this or because I did that or I did another thing. When it comes to the first birth, we don't even think about that. Yeah, I don't ask any of you to say, how do you know you were born? Well, because I went down to some hospital over there on the north side of San Antonio and I did some research and I found a footprint. You know what? It matches my footprint. That's how I know I was born. You see, you say, that's, that's a, I know that I was one time in my mother's womb because I stand here right now living, breathing. I'm alive. I can, I can almost breathe fully without coughing. I, I have some measure of health. I know I was born. Joshua knew that. He didn't, I mean, he's a kid. He didn't even have to think about it. And yet, isn't it amazing that when we go around to people and we say, how do you know you're born again? Immediately, they shift gears. Because I did something. That is so typical. How do you know you were born again? Well, because I walked an aisle. Because when I was six, I got baptized. Because I did this. Because I did that. Because I did another thing. It is incredible, folks. And you know what? You're being, if you are born again, you had just as much to do with it as you had to do with it the first time, which is nothing. You had nothing to do with it. You say, well, 
But Scripture says I should call men and women to repent and to believe. Yes, you should. You should, because it's right in the context of that gospel that the Spirit of God will cause men to be born again. It is. That is the very fertile soil for the Spirit of God working. That's why we should do it. But I'll tell you this. If it happens, it's not because you had some power to make it happen. It's only because the Spirit of God was pleased at the presentation of the gospel and the glorifying of Jesus Christ to step in right then and bring home spiritual power to cause that individual who was dead in trespasses and sins to now be made alive in Christ. It happens instantaneously, momentarily, and that's how Paul can say, if you've been justified, you can't walk in sin. You can't do it. And boy, people will... That they, people are programmed to think in a hundred ways about how they're responsible for their being born again. Well, I did this. I did that. I believed. I did this other thing. Oh, folks. People want to believe that they did the things that they were taught they must do to be born again. But you know what? The answer should be just like Joshua's answer. How do I know I've been born again? Because I'm alive to God. Because where He wasn't in all my thoughts before, now He is. Because where before I didn't love this Word, I love it like a child wants its mother's milk. Like it says... Because where I didn't love God's people, now I do and I want to be with them. Where before I had no expectation of heaven and desire to be there, where people are holy and where there's no sin, I long to be without sin. I want to see Christ face to face. How do I know I'm alive? Because things are real in my life that were not real before. Old things are passed away. All things have become new and I didn't do it. Because at such a time as the Word of God was being exposed to me, I was drinking my 40 ounces, trying to run in the opposite direction. And He called me forth from the dead, and I came forth. He made me like what I didn't used to like. He made me hate what I used to love. How do I explain that? Because I have life. Not because I can go back and trace down these steps. You don't do it with your physical birth. We shouldn't do it with our second birth. We need to be able to say, like, like Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again. He has. You know what the new covenant is? God says, I will separate them. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will put them within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will be your God. I will deliver you. I will make the fruit of the tree of the increase of the field abundant. God says, I will, I will, I will. When you are born again, it's because He does. He says, I will, and He does. It's not because we chose Him. It's because He chose us. It's not because we initiated it. It's because He initiated it. It's not because we got this grand idea and we're smarter than the guy sitting next to us. If I'm born again, while God passes over many others, it's because He chose even as Jesus Christ said to His own disciples, you didn't choose Me, I chose you. You may think you came to Me. You may think in the way it worked out in your life that somehow you chose Me. Because there, there is a... There, I mean, when God causes us to be born again, we do willingly desire and grasp hold of Christ. In that, there's truth. But I never had an inclination to do it or desire to do it. Any good thing, except He first recreated me, gave me a new heart, gave me a new spirit, made me a new creation. Old things are passed away. 
That's what it is to be born again. And that's how Paul can say, if you've been justified, this great grace does not lead you to more and more sin. It can't be. It cannot happen. Because in Christ, you are dead to sin. You have been raised. You have a resurrection of your own unto newness of life. It's impossible. So please, if you're here today and you claim to be a Christian, but you know sin has you in its grasp, oh, how often we come across people like this. Say, what do I do? I'll tell you what you do. If you find yourself in that position, don't say, well, God caused us to be born again. You told me and you showed me from the Word. I can't do it. So what's the use? I'll tell you this. If you're made aware of it and it causes you concern, for starters, who do you think gave you the concern? Because dead in sin, you have no concern. So you have good indication God is at work already. Second thing I'd say, He does cause to be born again right in the context of the preaching of the Word. So if you find yourself in a place where sin has dominion in your life, what I call you to do is repent and believe the gospel. And you're not going to believe the gospel unless you know it. And if you put yourself in a place where it's being taught, and you put yourself in the book and begin to read it, that's the very climate in which the Spirit of God causes men and women to be born again. So put yourself where you're likely to be reeled in. Remember this. God never told anybody to sit still and sit there and wait for you to have God save you. He said, repent and believe the gospel. And so do it. Repent and believe the gospel. And if you hear my voice, it's because He's given you life. And if you don't hear it and you walk away and you say that guy's full of it, it's because you haven't. And there are times I am full of it, but I'll tell you, when I'm telling you from God's Word, you need to believe it. What I told you today is from God's Word can't be argued. So let's pray. Lord, it is You and You alone. Lord, we know if we have anything good, it's because we're regenerated. We know, Lord, that if we have any desires for Christ, it's because we have been regenerated. We know if we have any love for Him, any desire to be like Him, to be a follower of Him, to be an imitator of Him, it's because You have regenerated us. Lord, if we see within us any spiritual life, any spiritual hope, any spiritual vigor, any righteous zeal, any hunger for, for righteousness and for truth, any thirsting to... Lord, for anything that's good, for any enlightenment, any ability to discern Your Word... Lord, we know it's because it comes from the Spirit because we've been made alive. If we have any concern about sin, any working of repentance, any sorrow for sin, Lord, we know it's because You've given us life. Lord, I know I can look at myself and I see that I am not what I used to be and that there is life within me that I have not created. Lord, I know it's not because I somehow got smart enough to choose You. Lord, You said no man can come to You unless Your Father draws us. And I believe if we have a group of people in this room that have truly been drawn of the Spirit, truly been drawn of the Father, Lord, there are others who sit in darkness. And I pray, Lord, You would call them from that darkness into Your glorious light. Lord, just speak it. Say, let there be light. And they will see light flowing ever so glorious from the face of Jesus Christ. We ask it in His name.